So here's what I know. All too often, it's three songs and a sermon, three songs and a sermon, three songs and a sermon, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Sometimes we get a topic that we need to dig deeper on, and we don't because we have something scheduled for the next chapel. Well, today we're digging a little deeper. On Monday, as part of the Luther Lee Lecture Series on Reconciliation, Dr. Willie Jennings from Yale brought God's Word to us. And uh, Dr. Hawkins and I have been talking about this event for several months now and saying we wanted to dig deeper about the idea of reconciliation. And so rather than just having another sermon today, we're having a panel. And it's going to be a little different because with panels, unless you stay engaged, it's easy to just sort of drift. So I want to encourage you to lean in as these people discuss some of the responses from Monday that you wrote questions of. And about halfway through, we're going to have a chance. We're going to stop. We're going to have some interaction time. And you can uh, tweet some questions as well to keep this interactive. So, uh, gentlemen, lady. I was going to say ladies and gentlemen, but there's only one lady here. Welcome. And uh, may you engage our minds. May God engage our minds as you lead us together. David, thank you. Hello, everyone. How you doing? Woo! Yeah. All right. My name is David Humphrey. I'm director of Multicultural Access and Outreach here at Indiana Wesleyan University. On our panel, we have Dr. Quincy Kana, Associate Professor of Ethnic and Multicultural Ministry for Wesley Seminary. Dr. Lena Crusoe, Director of Intercultural Student Services. All right. Academic Development, as, as well as Associate Professor here. Dr. Absent Joseph, Associate Professor. All right, Dr. Joseph. New Testament and Ancient Languages in the School of Theology and Ministry, and Dr. Rusty Hawkins, Associate Professor of Humanities and History for the Honors College. So these are our panelists. We are doing something that has never been done before, right? So we want to keep you engaged, amen? So what we're going to do is we're going to allow you to take out your phones. Ah, I know, right? Temptation. For the purpose of tweeting questions as they arise during the panel. So welcome to the Luther Lee Town Hall panel. And we're going to talk about some of the questions that bubbled up to the top because of Monday's presentations from Dr. Jennings. All right? So let's start. So the, the whole format for this will be about 15 minutes of talk back, then two minutes for you to submit your session, your questions, I'm sorry. Uh, and then the last 18 minutes will be responses to those questions that you're sending through the hashtag LutherLee2016. Cool? All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to start and pose the first question for this panel. So how do you choose to identify with the oppressed? Basically framing the discussion with Dr. Jennings' chapel lecture talking about identifying, loosing our hold from sitting at the feet of Pharaoh, or sitting in the house of Pharaoh and identifying with the oppressed. How do you choose to identify with the oppressed? How do you choose to identify with the oppressed? Um, I think the first, there's a sense in which the answer is in the question itself. Hmm. You choose to. Uh, how you go about doing that, I think one of the ways of doing that is by choosing to live with them. You can't identify with the oppressed from a distance. You can't know the plight of the oppressed by just studying about it. 
you, you can begin to understand it, but to fully identify with them, to fully demonstrate empathy, you need to live with them. And there's a sense in which God himself demonstrates that for us. He comes in and lives with us. Uh, the word became, became flesh and dwell with us. He tabernacled with us. And by journeying in human flesh, he comes to understand really who we are and then is able to now raise us out of the depth and redeem us from, from our problems. So the first step I will say is to live with them and, and learn their plight from first-hand experience. Anyone else want to tackle that? I, okay, so here's the thing. There's always been a them. There's always been a them. You know, from whatever context we put ourselves, you're going to be a them. I'm going to be a them. There's always going to be a them. No, I'm tired of seeing a them. I'm tired of even saying the word them. Say it out loud. Good. Somebody's tracking with us. There's always going to be an us, and there's always going to be a them. But, you know, the fundamental thing that we have to wrap ourselves around is that there's always been the universal us, and the universal us has always been God's humanity. Hence to Dr. Joseph's point, the greatest example of entering in was when God in his Trinitarian form came as the Son incarnate. The flesh came and dwelt among us. You know, like, that's the picture of entering in. So if we all recognize that we're all the universal us from the beginning, then I think that might help us to stop looking for the them, because we're always going to be juxtaposed. You know, we're always going to be, like, pressed against what's not us, what's not me. And if we can stop doing that, we will stop creating illusions and delusions of the other. And so as we move towards that, it's important that you begin to understand yourself in the context of the Trinitarian God, the God that said, I'm coming. And you know what? I'm not going to come as a king. I'm not going to come with power and right all these wrongs that you all did anyway, I'm going to come in the meek and the mild and as human, just like us. Wow. Now, if that's not an example of entering in, then I would love for you to give me another example. And I'll, I'll listen, but give me another example. So let's go back to the original question. How do you choose First, recognize that God first loved us, the universal us. So that's where I want to land for right now. I, I think we've heard uh, a, a lot about the incarnation uh, from the first two responses. You know, the way that I would capsulize that is, is saying that Jesus came from a privileged background. He was rich. He had it all. And he left that and what's noted in, in theological terms is the scandal of particularity. He came to a particular group of people who were in the down position. Hmm. He went to Jews who were under an oppressive Roman government, and he went into a poor family. He chose, 
very specifically to go into the down position and identify people that were on the margins. Now, what does that look like in real life? A prime example would be John Perkins, if you, and if you are, are familiar with him and his, his uh, foundational work in community development. African-American, uh, probably in his nearing 80s, his, his 80s right now, so he came up in the segregated South in Mississippi. And the only motivation for an African-American at that time in the segregated South was to get out of Mississippi. And he got out. He left. He succeeded. He went to California with his family, got a good job, 12-room home, wonderful experience. And then he received salvation and was discipled for about two years through Child Evangelism Fellowship. And guess what? God said, go back. Go back where? Go back to Mississippi. Go back to where I escaped, where, where there's all this turmoil, where, where my life is in danger. Yeah, go back. And he went back with no job, had to, had to move in with some relatives, and he lived among the people. And the folks said, why did you come back? You escaped. You made it. You made it to the promised land. And he lived there. He had to find little scraps of work to, to, to make ends meet. And in the course of time, he built solidarity. There was a solidarity that was built between him and the people that he was abiding with. They saw that he was real because he didn't run. They saw that he had sacrificed. And out of that relationship and that solidarity bubbled up opportunities for them to reimagine the space. It went from a us and them to a what might we do? And the ideas about what they could do in their neighborhood, in their communities, to better themselves, to, to do various things. From that solidarity that was established, the solutions bubbled up from that. So he didn't come in as the know-it-all saying, this, we ought to do this, and you, you know, there's poverty and there's all these various things. Instead, because there was first relationship and solidarity that was established, the people then came of one mind, and they were able to voice the kinds of solutions not for someone else to do, but for them to participate in. So I think choosing means that you go and you rub shoulders with people that you normally wouldn't before. Long enough for them to check you out and see if you're real. See if you're just that privileged person coming from that privileged uh, situation, because sometimes my wife talks about uh, situations where, where people would come into ghetto schools to get their school loans uh, 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 excused. They go there long enough for that and then they leave. They weren't really invested in the children in those communities. But if you can come there and stay and recognize people long enough for people to recognize that you're real and you're sincere, that's where the, lit the litmus test, I think, is for determining whether or not your choice is sincere or not. Well, let me move to the second question real quickly. Um, so since there's a, there needs to be a rupture that happens inside of you, right? You need to not be, engage in re reconciliation tourism, right? There, there needs to be a living among, okay? Um, so if we identify with the persecuted and therefore become persecuted ourselves, how do we change the world? Wouldn't it be easier to change the world from a position of power? Can you tackle that for us? I would just continue with that same example with, with John Perkins. 
the, the kinds of fundamental changes that occur don't happen, happen with trickle-down economics types of, of, of approaches. They happen from the, from the grassroots. They happen when it becomes a groundswell where the people become a, a force to be reckoned with because they are one. If you always up, de depend on someone in an up position, it's kind of like we, we have aid that is disseminated in this country on four-year cycles. Depends on who's in the White House. So if we always depend on someone that is elected or someone that has enough money, what happens when the money runs out? What happens when there's electoral change? But if it comes from the grassroots, it has much, much more opportunity for it to have staying power. I get one more response, if, if any, to that, or do you want to? I think power is overrated. <laughs> um, in judo, for example, uh, the person who wins is not the person who is most powerful, but the person who can strategically use pivot points to, you know, do a good throw. Um, but if we go back to the Bible, identifying with the oppressed is identifying with God. Hmm. When God wanted to change the world, he didn't change it from a position of power, hmm. although he was the most powerful. And there's a reason why uh, the vision of the end is that a child will lead them all. Hmm. Uh, there is strength in weakness, um, but it's not the kind of weakness as we think of it. Weakness is not necessarily feeble. Weakness is when we realize our limitations because we find strength in God. Um, so there's a sense in which um, identifying with the oppressed is not just identifying with their plight, but identifying with the oppressed. Yes, we're going to be oppressed too, possibly, but it gives us a chance to also benefit in the vindication that God is going to bring. Because God already tells us in his word that just like we suffer as Christ suffered, we will also have a reward the same way he also was rewarded. So identifying with the oppressed doesn't stop at the suffering they have. Identifying with the oppressed continues to the reward and vindication because we believe that there's a God who's on the side of the oppressed who's going to come and deliver. But I have to say that when we think of God delivering the oppressed, it's not going to be just an issue of the bottom becomes up and the up, the, the up becomes down. The idea of the valleys being raised and the mountains being flattened create a leveling of the playing field where all of us together are one. And for that to happen, it begins with identifying with the oppressed and yes, possibly suffering with them, but it eventually rejoicing in the deliverance that God brings and celebrating that. So we're gonna start with Dr. Hawkins on this first, this next question, because I know that st students wanna hear Dr. Hawkins as well, right? Uh, so, <laughs> Why do we have so many race and reconciliation talks, but IWU is still a bubble, right? Um, how have you been, so it's two parts, how have you been transformed by entering into someone else's space? Thanks for starting with me on that. <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, whoever asked that question. 
um, on Monday. <clears throat> Why do we have a lot of, of racial reconciliation talks, but we still have a bubble? I, I wonder if it's because uh, when we talk about reconciliation, we talk about it in, in ways that aren't really reconciliation. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that if we understand what reconciliation is and what reconciliation requires, that we need to appreciate ways in which when we're talking about reconciliation, we're not talking about tolerance, we're not talking about being friendly, we're not talking about being hospitable, we're talking about reconciliation in terms that mean transformation. And that if we truly pursue reconciliation as individuals or as an institution, um, what's at stake here is not just better relationships, but a fundamental transformation of what we look like, what we do, ways we operate, because reconciliation requires some kind of transformation of the two parties that are being reconciled. I wonder if we talk a lot about reconciliation, sorry, we talk a lot about reconciliation. I don't, I don't know that we pursue it as, as ardently as we talk about it. And to that point, I think there's a, there's a cautionary way in which we live because I almost think like the bubble really isn't always about the insulated space. It's, it's about the spaces we're choosing to enter in. You know, like how many spaces of people around you do you even see and look at? You know, to the point, to the question of how do you choose well, do you even see beyond your own periphery? You know, these spaces are sacred spaces where God is at work. And so we can enter into that. And I think that when we talk about reconciliation, there should be a presumptive understanding. And I'm gonna say it again, there should be a presumptive understanding that that is a call to action. Otherwise, we would read the scriptures and only hear Jesus talking. And we could say, oh, well, I'm taking in more information. But isn't it presumptive then that as a follower of Christ, but also a member of the body of Christ, that, that it is a call to action? I, I wonder if we, if we make it so complicated and, and scholarly and academic. I love what Dr. Jennings said when he said, you know, we, 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 are, we have so many highly educated people who don't know anything. And that struck me. That pressed in on me. I said, wow, God, am, am I so busy studying it and talking about it and hoping for it and wishing for it? And maybe later, and maybe the next generation, and maybe if the faculty get it, and maybe, and maybe, and maybe, and maybe. Well, like, today is the day, you know? And so, yeah, we do talk, and we do have reconciliation discussions and programs, but I wonder if the presumption is then now, go, live, be, be a minister of reconciliation. So, yeah. I don't know that you can just hang it on why do we have a lot of talks. I, I don't know, I guess I'm gonna push back a little bit on that question and say, no, is, it, is the indictment really on that we talk about it a lot? 
Or is it that just we just don't step into the action of it? Can I, sorry, can I say something? Can I, yeah. I kind of like lob a grenade out there and this guy back away from it? So let me, let me kind of be clear maybe what I'm talking about when I say we don't pursue it. I think this sometimes comes down to a, to a, a posture of, of ourselves as an institution. I mean, we, we, we bring you here and promise you that you're going to be world changers. Maybe that's not, maybe, we're, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> I just signed a three-year contract, Dr. Newman, so it's <laughs> good for three years. Yeah. Maybe she's saying, you come here and, and, and learn how to, to be a, a better listener. Maybe we, we should tell you to come here and, and, and not say, we have lots of opportunities here in Marion to go out into the community and to, and to serve those who are below us, but instead, what can we do to bring people from this community who have different experiences in life bring them to us and, and learn from them and, and put ourselves, before we start asking to host, we can, we can listen, we can be a guest. Is one of the things that, that Dr. Jennings was, was talking about on, on, on Wednesday. So I think maybe it's, a, it's an attitude of posture. I, I think something else is just, even, even the, the attitude at which we approach the classroom. Do we go into the classroom um, thinking, I'm gonna take from this class the things that reinforce ideas that I already have in my head? Or do we go to every class saying, what don't I know that I can learn from this class in ways that maybe I could be transformed from it? In other words, is this an exercise here in reinforcing ideas that you already had when you came in? Or is this an opportunity for you in the four years that you're here to learn something that you hadn't considered before and perhaps be changed by that? I, I don't know that we've wrestled fully with these kind of questions when we even recruit people here. And let me say this finally, because I can imagine what Twitter's doing right now. Or, Yuck oh, it's, it's blowing up, so. Okay. <laughs> There's a kind of an irony that always the most divisive chapels are the reconciliation chapels, right? So let me just say that, that, that the purpose of any of this is not to create dissent or, or, or unrest or, or make well, people upset. Bit, right? maybe, maybe a little holy unrest, but, yeah. but, but the purpose of this is to try to build something on this. So, so I will speak for me as someone who's been on these panels way too many times and know how the reaction of these things often go. Don't, don't resort to social media to, to air a grievance out there and just lob bombs. Use this as an opportunity to have discussions with other living human beings in which you can gauge the reactions to the words that you're saying on their faces. And to that end, my office is over in Goodman 203, and the door is always open. If you disagree ardently with anything I'm saying today, please, please come see me and let's sit down and let's have a conversation. I don't want this to, to be just poking, poking, poking. I want this to, I don't know, produce reconciliation. So let's, let's do that. All right, we, gotta, we have to move forward, I'm sorry. So we, we have to transition to the interactive phase. Um, so I want you to, if you already haven't done so, some of you have, um, we want to go, we want to continue in this theme of thinking about our spaces. How do we reconcile, how do we reimagine our spaces, right? Um, so spend some time reflecting on that. If we take Jennings's idea seriously about reimagining and reconciling our spaces, what concrete ways can you go about reconciling and reimagining your spaces? Now, now, that in mind, that framing your thought process, let's go to social media 
and let's pose some questions real quickly that we can digest and we can discuss on, okay? Can we take the next two minutes to do that? Is that okay? Cool? All right, I guess. Well, let's do it. Let's do it for the next two, two minutes. Think about that dialogue with the person next to you. Create a question. Go to Facebook. I mean, go to social media. Go to Twitter. I'm sorry. Hashtag LutherLead2016. Do it in love, right? All right, so let's, let's come back on together. Let's, let's refocus. I have a question for you. A student posed, it, posed here, we, 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 have, we have this inclination to always result here, so let's clear this up real quick. This tweet is real clear with the question. Capitalism has done more to lift the poor out of poverty. Why attack capitalism when communalism and socialism fails? Is this idea an affront to our democratic and capitalistic society? Is it all about affronting and destroying capitalism? Can we deal with this right now and get this out the way? My I, th I think my response is, where's this question coming from? We have not spoken about capitalism in this time that we've been here. It seems like a red herring, a distraction from how do, two, how do people groups interact with each other. I am, I am not from around here. <laughs> And um, so the things that I have talked about and that I have seen and, and lived are not based on capitalism. Um, so I don't think what we're talking about rises or falls based on capitalism. These are things that are entrenched in principles of how we've seen God give Israel principles on how to live. Um, so it's not just about economics, it is about how we live with one another, and it is not about whether or not capitalism rises or falls. It's a different, it's a different issue altogether. And I lived a good part of my life in my home country of India, and I can do the accent very easily. I can do the Indian accent. If you want me to be a foreigner, I will be a foreigner. But look, let me tell you, the, thank you. The, the essence of capitalism or communism or socialism, all of these structures of economy, and I'm not going to speak as an economist, I don't dare, but all I can tell you are the things that have happened in India. It hasn't happened, good or bad, because of the economic system that was implemented. And that's going to take a long conversation. I don't think we have time to go into pre colonialism, post-colonialism, and what happened in between, and I really don't want to right now, but I would love to have a conversation with you about things that have happened in India and where India is sitting now. How can it be the largest democracy in the world and still be in the state of being that it is? If you want to talk about economic systems and how they don't necessarily bring a culture of holistic development, let's talk. And my office is right near Macon, above the stairs of the bookstore, so come on over. 
But yeah, let's let's not get distracted because we we haven't brought up economic systems. Yeah. So I don't know, Dr. Hawkins. Yeah, sorry. Let me let me just add one more thing to this. Coming out of the lecture on Monday night, because this is where this question is coming from, something that was brought up during the question and answer on Monday night. I'll just say it frank. To take from that lecture that that the purpose of that lecture was an endorsement of communism is 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 completely an exercise in missing the point of the entire night. And that really, that, that pains me deeply, but that's what, right. that's what that's become. What Dr. Jennings was proposing on Monday night, and please hear me say this, was that there's a particular vision of human flourishing that consists of rightly ordered love of God and neighbor. And what he's saying is that particular vision of human flourishing, of the good life, of rightly ordered love of God and neighbor, is always in competition with other ways of seeing the world, including economic structures. So yeah, capitalism does a lot of good. It does. It brings tremendous amount of wealth to some people. At the same time, though, the point he's trying to make is it also brings some evils and part of the purpose of capitalism, part of the tenor of capitalism, built into the structure of capitalism, is an idea of separating people. And if you're interested in that, read his book. It's a brilliant treatise on how this developed. It's called The Christian Imagination, and he lays the whole thing out for you there. The purpose is not to say capitalism in and of itself is evil. The purpose of his book, the purpose of his writing is to say capitalism can often draw our loves away from God and neighbor in such a way that they malform them, that it does a lot of good, but capitalism is not the vision of the good life according to the Christian theological narrative. That the Christian theological narrative offers us a vision of human flourishing that sometimes is at odds with the logic of capitalism. And, and if you want more about that, there's, there's courses at this university called What is the Good Life that you can take and we can walk through this together. And there, there are courses in the School of Theology and Ministry about the good life. And, and, and if you're going to live your life according only to economic logic, you're missing out on the entire purpose of a liberal arts education. You're missing out on theology, you're missing out on philosophy, you're missing out on history, you're missing out on literature that might provide for us other ways of seeing the world that moves us beyond one particular narrow vision of reality, economic logic which is great, but it's not the entirety of, of human society. All right, now that we've killed that capitalism question, right? All right. How can we, re we recover our geographic identity? How can we reconcile spaces when many of us will move multiple times in our lives for schools, jobs, et cetera? I, I think when you, when you consider space, space is where you are right now. All right, we've, we've got displaced peoples in this country, Native Americans, and that's a historic displacement. One, one, and that's one issue of, of there needs to be a national conversation about how you can't, we can't unring the bell, but how, how can we work together and, and reimagine how the space could and should be with Native Americans in this country? That's one conversation. The other conversation about space is wherever you are, there's a space around you and you have a choice about how you will engage people that enter your space and when you enter other people's space. One of the comments by Dr. Jennings was that uh, oftentimes 
institutions, and he wasn't naming just this institution, but institutions in general, when they come into a space, a locale, a neighborhood, they displace people, and oftentimes the administrators and the faculty do not know the stories of the people that have been displaced. What of the people that were displaced when these buildings came up? What do we need to know about that? How did that make them feel? What, what, what uh, injustices or, or what benefits happened? We, don't, we need to know the stories of the people in the spaces that we occupy. And also, from the institutional standpoint, he said, if you view yourself as an institution as the guest in the community rather than the host. See, that's a different perspective. If I'm the host, I got it going on. You come to my house. What happens when people come to your house? They have to follow your rules. You can go to this bathroom downstairs, but you can't go upstairs, right? I've got sitting room friends. They can make it as far as the, some people make it to my front porch. Others I'll allow in the sitting room. If you're a little closer to me, we can ha have supper together in the dining room and family can go anywhere in the house. So how do you imagine the space that you occupy? I think that is, 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 is another way of reframing that, that whole concept. We can also add the idea of... Can we make it, I'm sorry, make it, can we make it quick? Yes, I will. Okay. Uh, the idea of... Sorry, we're just running out of time, I'm The idea no, of how can I make this space better? It's something that I learned growing up as a Boy Scout. Every time you go a place, you go there with the intention of how do I make this place better? Uh, I've moved a lot, Haiti, Jamaica, Russia, Kentucky, here. We go in and embody the space. This is home, but by the time I leave, I'm going to do everything to leave this place better than how I found it. Real quickly, can somebody address this question? Because it seems to point at something, right? Can you please tell us a practical way to reconcile without simply giving all we own to others? Can you, can you, can you, can quick, you deal with that one? Quick, very quickly. Five points. Uh, <laughs> it's not a three-point sermon, it's a five-point. Rabbi Blumenthal, Jewish Catholic Conversation, Cross Currents Article 1999. There had to be an understanding of concrete ways to reconcile. First, understand that the person that has offended someone else. You must admit mentally, understand you've, you've, you've crossed a line, you've, you've broken a law. That's the mental part. The 18 inches that we hear about in Christianity, the next piece, the pathos, in my heart, I feel remorse. Because when you feel something, it goes into your long-term memory. You won't forget the, the fact that you hurt someone, you stepped on someone's feet. Point number three, restitution. Zacchaeus, if I've done something wrong, then as much as I'm able, can I do something to restore this person to do something about this, this hurt here? Uh, the next piece was, was dealing with repentance. If I've been stepping on your feet, stop stepping on someone's foot. Point five, uh, confession. Notice this comes at the end. A public confession among the assembly of people that in religious groups or wherever the case is, a public confession of the wrong and a private confession to God. That brings about personal transformation. When that happens in Jewish culture, then the person that's been offended is obligated by the covenant of reconciliation to forgive that person. 
So there's a transformation that takes place by the offender and the offended. Dr. Hawkins, since the Luther Lee lecture series was, your, was, was the vision that God had given you, right, to help us, or you helped to move the vision along, okay, can I just say that more, okay? And we have closing minutes here. We have about three minutes left. Can you close us out with what the Lord has been laying on your heart on how do we continually work towards reimagining and reconciling spaces and relationships? And then can you close us out in prayer? Is that fair? All right. Yeah, I think. I can do the prayer part. Before, before Dr. Hawkins speaks, I hope that you take what's happening on Twitter and let these be prompts for discussion across campus. So not, not in the classroom especially. So don't let the conversation dialogue stop here. Yeah. One of the things that Dr. Jennings said yesterday in um, our conversations with students after chapel around the, about, around the uh, lunch table together is he mentioned that um, you all, Students are the force on campus. Whether you recognize it or not, you all often drive the direction of the university. So you have in your hands a pretty radical power. In terms of moving forward from this, I think the questions you have to ask yourself are, um, what are ways in which I feel we could do better as an institution in terms of pursuing reconciliation? And then ask yourselves and talk amongst yourselves, how can we as students organize to pursue this? What, what kind of student organizations can we form? What kind of um, projects can we engage in? Look around and try to identify the needs, the shortcomings of, of the institution, ways that you can speak into that. And in a lot of respects then, the onus is on you all as students. I think often we want to move directly to action we want to go just do something. What do we need to do? And this is a constant refrain. What do we can do? What can we do? What can we do? Maybe before we get to what we can do, we need to spend a lot more time thinking about what we need before we talk about the do. Where is the need before the doing? Maybe we need to spend more time reflecting and identifying before we can move to action and solutions. So going forward, students, talk, discuss, identify, expand, all these things that, that, that Dr. Jennings was talking about when he was here on, on Monday, these, these are incumbent upon you now to, to, to do these things. Can I, can I leave it at that and, and, and close this out in prayer? And I wanna, I wanna pray a prayer that I use this in class, and you, you know this if you had a class with me, so pray it along with me if you know it. We're gonna pray the prayer of Du Bois from, from 1910. This will be our, our closing prayer and then, and then going out. We pray, give us grace, O God, to dare to do the deed which we well know cries to be done. Let us not hesitate because of ease or the words of men's mouths or our own lives. Mighty causes are calling us, the freeing of women, the training of children, the putting down of hate and murder and poverty, all these and more. But they call with voices that mean work and sacrifices and death. Mercifully grant us, O God, the spirit of Esther, that we say, I will go unto the king, and if I perish, I perish. Amen. Go Let's in peace to love and so the Lord. Hand clap.